Welcome. You're listening to the Diving In podcast, brought to you by Virginia Seymour and Louise Jones. This podcast is part of a lifelong conversation between friends about the books we're reading and the issues they make us think about. That also goes for the movies and television we're watching and the podcasts we're currently hooked on. We might even talk about what's in the news and anything else we're diving into this week. Diving In. Hi, Louise. Hi there. Hi, readers. It's lovely to be back in the uh, studio, a.k.a. Lou's study, for another conversation about what we've been reading in the past fortnight. Lou and I are sitting here and we're dipping cute gingerbread biscuits into our cups of tea. Because it's that time of year. (laughs) They're delicious. So we hope you'll go and make a cup of tea so you can join us as we catch up. I haven't seen you, Lou, for a couple of weeks, so I know, I'm really looking I know, forward to this. I know. It's like uh, we're starting afresh. Yeah, yeah. Can I just mention that I made an error in the last episode? I referred to a book written by Vikram Seth's mother, Layla Seth, and I think I refer to it as a fine balance. Right. Which, of course, is the book set in, also set in India. Yeah. In the 1970s by, is it Rohinton Mystery? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. So that's not Layla Seth's book. Okay. Layla Seth's book, uh, which I don't seem to be able to source anywhere, but someone may have it out there, is called On Balance. Uh-huh. Which makes sense for a judge. Absolutely. And it's yeah. also about her life. Yeah. Um, sorry about that, guys. Uh, I did leave it in the show notes in the correct form, but for those of you that are listening, don't be looking for a fine balance, although a few people contacted us and also raved about that book as well. Yeah, so. yeah. I think my sister really, really loves that book. Yes. I haven't read that either, I don't think. Um, I'm not sure. I can't remember. And... Um, it's a coincidence that it's also set in India. I know. I think that's probably why you did it. You yeah. made that yeah. mental leap. So what have you been reading this month, I should uh, say? So I've read a few things. I've got two that I'm going to talk about. So the first one is a book called Contacts by Mark Watson. Um, Mark Watson is a British stand-up comedian. Mm. I didn't know of him, really. You know, we don't see a lot of these comedians as much as maybe the British people do. But his face is very familiar. Oh, yes, yes. No, I recognise him. Uh, I've seen him on television. Yeah, it's on the back of the jacket. And I think yeah. he's been on lots of those programs. And that, like chat shows, yeah, like you yeah. know, 8 out of 10 cats or whatever, yeah. some of those silly quiz shows. He's very, very familiar to me mm. um, when I look at the picture of him. This is his eighth book, wow! which is amazing. I haven't read any of his before. And Adam Kay, who I just adore, yeah, fantastic. Um, says that um, Mark Watson is one of his favourite writers, okay. which I found interesting. And the other people who've written blurbs on the front of this book are Richard Curtis, okay. can you imagine, yes. and Tim Minchin. Okay. So this was sent to me by the publisher. There's a lot of detail in it that I don't want to give away, so I'm going to be very careful to keep this spoiler-free, mm. as we always do. So it's quite a dramatic idea, this book. It's a guy named James Chilton, um, and he boards a train in London, and he gets onto the Edinburgh overnight train, and he sends a text out to everyone in his list of contacts, all 158 of them. So everyone in his phone gets the same message, and it's to say that he's decided to end his life. And then he turns his phone off 
or he puts it into flight mode, effectively wow. the same thing. And off the train goes and the journey begins. So wow. it's quite a dramatic beginning. And James is a sort of everyman. He's quite a sympathetic character. As the book progresses, he seems sort of perfectly together cognitively. There's, mm. there's nothing very obviously wrong with his cognition. So he's portrayed as a sort of a nice guy who has done decent things for other people, but he's not a big world beater. And you find yourself really wanting him to not go ahead with the plan. Mm. So it's really quite well done because what happens is um, you're told that he gets on the train and he and he sends this message out and he puts his phone into flight mode and he goes and lies on his bunk bed with his pies and his drink. So all intents and purposes, it is a serious very, thing he's done. Very like, like serious. He, 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 he intends to absolutely. do this. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. He completely yeah. intends to. Mm. And what happens is the story then goes back to what led him to feel so hopeless. Mm. This sounds like it would be an incredibly bleak book, but it's actually not. He feels really hopeless about his future. And what I will say is that it's just a, a convergence of circumstances that have all led to him feeling alone. Mm. So he's sort of had a falling out with a couple of the key people in his life. Mm. Uh, his sister is a long way away. And I don't think any one person realises that their impact on him is only part of a whole yes. circle of, of impacts that are all converging to make him feel Which seems very desperate. believable. It's completely believable. There could be things that by themselves might seem more trivial. Yes. But when you put them as part of a, a wider group yeah, of issues. Yeah, when they all happen at once yeah, and, yeah. and it's all your key people, mm. you can really feel quite mm. cast adrift. Mm. So. The story then goes back to what led him to feel like this and then the story moves forward and alternates chapters between him and then a handful of the closest family and friends who've received the message mm. or, in one case, a person who didn't get the message but heard about it from oh, someone else. Which is also how things happen. It is. In the modern exactly. world that we live in. Exactly. So there's an elderly relative who has sort of given up on technology because she found it all a bit hard. And she's always having to ask her children to help her. Mm. And so she just sort of gave up and she doesn't have a mobile phone. Mm. So she didn't get the message. But she gets a phone call on her old landline in the hallway. And so she's feeling like she's of no use whatsoever because she can't she's, participate She can't in contact this. him either. Yeah. Yeah. No. And it's just so believable and very contemporary. Yeah. And she and her partner, she has a partner and he's also a, a bit of a fuddy-duddy and he has to go off and try and get some charge on the funny old mobile phone that they have. He's got to go down to the shops to get some charge so they can attempt to send a text. You know, like it's really yeah. well done and mm. entirely believable and she's sort of left sitting in the hallway, sitting by the landline, feeling like the world is passing her by and I, I it was... Very, very interesting. Mm. And then there's a sister in Melbourne who wants to contact her brother, but she's so far away and the time differences are a problem. And there are people who've had a falling out with James and have not been speaking. And one of the fallings out was over a misunderstanding where a friend perhaps didn't give James the benefit of the doubt. And another one is where an ex-girlfriend made James late to a very important event and James had been torn between uh, the girlfriend and, you know, it was, it's, it's all very, very believable. So I, I loved this for many reasons. I mean, I've 
we've caught that train from London to Edinburgh, not the midnight one, but I just loved remembering that because it's such a beautiful one in terms of the view. It is, isn't it? And, you know, just remembering arriving at that station and then Princess Street and the bagpiper who's mm. always on the corner. Mm. So I just loved it from that point of view. And also, as I said, it's very much of our time. It's mm. set in 2019. Mm-hmm. I really want to read this. Yeah, and with the technology we all carry around but some people are struggling to keep up with and th- there are real consequences of that of not bringing everyone with us and I, and it's one of these books that made me think a lot about our world whose responsibility is it to bring everyone with us and of course I put myself in the older people bracket because I you know, I'm not as au okay with technology as I would like to be. Oh, you know. you're pretty good. Well, you know, I'm not. I'm not, I'm not like this lady, but <laughs> you know, I'm. I'm constantly asking my daughter to yeah, help well. me, help me with things. So I, I sort of straddle. You know, I think mm, we straddle we that do. just because of our age and mm. the time when this all came in. And it makes me think also, it wouldn't have been that long ago when somebody in James's position wouldn't have had access to 158 contacts on a mobile phone to send that message. Yep. So that's completely changed everything Mm. instantaneously. And I think the main thing this book made me think about is human connection and the importance of that. I was listening to Norman Swan on Coronacast the other day where someone had written in talking about, it was actually when Melbourne was still in lockdown, so it was a few Mm. weeks ago, talking about feeling very lonely and he said the most important thing is human connection. Yeah. And I thought it's such a simple answer. I mean, obviously, it's a much more complex thing underneath that. But human connection is everything. We are animals that need contact. contact. No matter how much we might all moan about other people mm. or feel like we, you know, have too much of them at mm. times, we do, we really do need them. It makes me think, especially in corona times, so we had a very active street during the oh, sort of the yes. peak of the corona period yeah. in Perth and people were reaching out, they were writing letters to each other oh. in the street, offering advice, offering shopping, wow. particularly to the people in the street who are a little bit older and there was definitely a reaching out but of course that's all stopped yes and you wonder if everyone's just going to go back into mm. their homes mm. and life's going to return yeah how it was before yeah and it's up to us to decide is. that isn't it, it whether is. we, we have to maintain those relationships yeah. and maintain yeah. those connections yeah and of course when mark watson wrote this he could not have known how big a topic mm. this was going to be in 2020 mm. And he sort of crafted the scenario in in which, you know, it's just so easy to see how just a few events with different people one by one can just unravel Mm. everything for that person. And at a time when we're very aware of um, the importance of mental health, I think this book is perfectly timed. It doesn't sort of point the blame at any one person or one event. It's just a very realistic sort of omniscient narrator Mm showing the reader how this series of events can lead to this sort of set of circumstances. And it doesn't neatly tie everything up into one neat solution either, um, where everybody rushes to James's side and makes it all better. Mm-hmm. It's a much more realistic ending than that. And it captures the nuance of the situation really well. And it has an ending that I didn't expect. And it's very well paced. And I gobbled it up because I really wanted to find out whether James mm. was going to be okay. Mm, really modern book yeah. for now. Yeah. I'd love to read that. Yeah. Excellent. Really good.
So what about you, Lou? What have you been reading? Oh, well, as you know, Jenny, one of my f- absolute favourite books of the year, if not the favourite, was The Mercies oh, yeah. by Kieran Millwood Hargrave. We reviewed that in episode 15. That was our Reading in Isolation episode. That was in April, I think. I'm going to read that in the summer break. Yeah, you'll love I've got it. it beside you will my bed. really love it. Mm. That's set on an island, Vardo, in the far northeast of Norway, known as the Finnmark Territory. That's that was the, the Norway women, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it was yeah, a terrible storm that, that mm. decimated the fishing mm-hmm. community. And it was left up to the women, basically, to ensure that the community survives. And in that book, the women were up against very strong and strict religious expectations deep superstition and prejudice and a patriarchy. And was there a Scottish connection? They appointed. That's right. A, like a manager of the island yes, or something. a commander of the island to come and sort those islanders out, those women out. And, of course, the, the environment is very harsh and unforgiving. So when I read the back of this book that I'm going to review today, it really reminded me of The Mercies. So I oh. immediately thought, I've got to read this. So this book is To Cook a Bear by the Swedish writer Mikhail Nimi. And it's been translated from Swedish, superbly, I might add, not because, of course, I'm I'm an expert in the Swedish language. I'm comparing and I think she used the right tense here. (laughs) (laughs) But I say that because it doesn't miss a beat in the reading of the English. Because, you know, you often when things are translated, you'll go, ooh, ooh, Mm. that that jarred a bit. It's just seamless. So that's by Deborah Bragan-Turner. She does a fantastic job. So To Cook a Bear is set in 1852. In the Piala district, particularly in the village of Kengis, which is in the far north of Sweden, close to the Finnish border, up in the remote north, which I think at the time or now is known as Lapland. Of course, because Norway and Sweden are long thin countries side by side, they both have borders with Finland in the north. And in this northern part of Sweden, the people speak Finnish. Oh, interesting. Just a sort of complicating factor. but So the book is written largely in the voice and largely in the head of a very young man, Yusi. And he's an itinerant young Sami boy, which is, I believe, the Indigenous name for the Laps. And uh, he is literally found in a ditch, cold, homeless, having run away from his abusive, violent mother. And he's found by a preacher, the pipe-smoking pastor Lars Levi Lastadius, who also has some lap in him through his mother's side, through his mother's descendants. And Lars takes him under his wing and into his household, and he effectively becomes the pastor's assistant, his disciple, really, wow. from the religious overtones of the book. Right. Now, Lars uh, Lestavius is a wonderful character. He's a wise and highly educated man who's been trained and studied. He is a revivalist Lutheran preacher, which are part of a group of Christian evangelical pastors who are trying to minister and convert the nomadic Sami people, the Laps, in this region. Right. And they're also bringing their evangelical style to the local congregation. This is an area I know nothing about. Yeah, well, I think the Mercies has really set me on a course to learn about that area. It's fascinating. He's very calm and intelligent and kind. And and his preaching style in church sort of... is very melodic and charismatic and it starts slowly and it builds up and his sermons eventually have that fire and brimstone, you know, crescendo and many of the congregation are left in this sort of exaltation and they're repenting their sins. So very much that evangelical style, which eventually spread to America. By all accounts, this is where it started. 
There are divisions in the congregation at the Kangas Church, and it's the poorer, more lowly members of the community, the farm, the cowhands, the milkmaids, the crofters. They're the ones that respond most passionately to his sermons, and he's popular with these members of the congregation, and they are more open to becoming reborn or reawakened, as it's referred to in this book. But then you've got, on the other hand, sort of the burghers of the community, like the innkeepers, the sheriff, you know, the foundry owner, the mill owner, and they're the ones that sit in the front pews of the church. And the church is segregated on gender lines. The men sit on one side, the women sit on the other. And that sort of demonstrative evangelical style does not suit them at all. They are very suspicious and they're wary, and they're wary of the pastor's language But really, they're wary of the influence and control he might have over the other people in the village. And that it might diminish their power. Exactly. And the boorish sort of lazy sheriff Bray is a a great example of that. And he's a great character. But there's a few other reasons they disapprove as well. The pastor is teetotal and he is spreading the words about the evils of alcohol. And, of course, the innkeepers. (laughs) Not happy about that. Not happy. And the burghers in the community, obviously, it's going to have an impact on their livelihood. So they're not happy about it either. But the pastor and Yossi spend their days together. They, they often go on excursions into the countryside for days and they do treks. The pastor has a herbarium and he has an encyclopedic knowledge about plants and he teaches Yossi about them and about his environment. And initially Yossi is sort of learning to recognise the plants, but then eventually he learns their names and he eventually learns to read and write. And, and it pleases the pastor greatly that you see is one of life's observers. And over the course of the book, their relationship shifts a little bit. You know, it's not really known how old you see is when he's first found, possibly 10 or 11. But it's this sort of lifelong relationship with the pastor that anchors the whole sort of story. And so we follow this child, this Sammy child, and we watch how he grows and changes in the pastor's company and sort of the wisdom and teaching that the pastor bestows on him. And it's quite slow and it's not really in a negative sense. It's just very detailed because you're on this journey with Yussi and you're sharing all his thoughts, all his feelings, his observations about the other characters. And Yussi remains very respectful of the pastor and very admiring, but as his confidence grows and the pastor encourages him to have opinions, their their relationship shifts slightly and eventually they start to have philosophical discussions and that kind of sets the tone for the relationship for most of the book. So the bits I'm talking about really at the beginning of the book. Yeah. But there's a denseness to the book because you're sort of part of his innermost thoughts and sort of hit the whole journey to adulthood and education and, and the whole the philosophy that's part of that journey. But you also get a sense that this is also about the pastor's journey as well. So very early on in the book, some local people come to the pastor and Yussi with news that a young woman, a maid, Hilda Friedrich's daughter, Friedrich's daughter, has gone missing. And it's an indication of the esteem with which the pastor is held in the village that they, the ordinary people, come to Lars first rather than going to the sheriff. And then later there appear to be more crimes that are happening in the village and it's amusing how frustrated the sheriff gets that the pastor is always the, the first, first one arriving oh. on the scene. And the crimes and violence, you know, which 
in this superstitious, religious, closed community, are really considered as evil, as Satan. That that becomes a major subplot of the book. And that's, you see in the pastor embark on an investigation. So the pastor is sort of like an unofficial detective with his sidekick. So is it a bit like Father Brown or Grouchester yeah. where, the, where the, the the local minister is just as involved? Yes, as, exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's in the classic tradition yeah. of... Holmes and Watson, oh, and you know, so it's that sort of idea that you know all the best sleuth stories are in that classic tradition. Yeah. They apply to their investigation, all of their learning, all of their philosophical and they know discussions. Everyone. Yeah, they know everybody. They know everybody, and they've been observing the botany, and they have oh. amateur forensics, and they're trying to solve the crime. So. There is a reason for having built not such see a relationship. This I didn't yeah. know you were going to say this was a crime yes. book. Well, it's interesting. In as of course many good crime books, the sort of apprehension of fear begins to build, both in relation to the crimes in the district, but also in relation to the pastor's revival movement. Because obviously, as many communities do, when they feel threatened, they sort of turn inwards. And I don't want to go into more details about what happens in relation to how the community reacts, because I would then really be straying into, you know, major plot spoilers, and I don't want to do that. A warning, you know, there is violence and really unpleasant things happen at times. So if, if that's not your kind of book, then don't read it. If I have a complaint, and it's very much a personal one, I'm someone who loves crime fiction, so I did get a little bit impatient because I wanted more of the sleuthing. Right. I wanted more yeah. of the detective okay. side of the story. But that's really only a part of a much bigger mm. sort of symbolic, richer story. Good and evil, faith and love, part philosophy, part parable. Wow, it's got everything. And it's very faithful to a real period of Swedish and Finnish history in the Arctic region. So, you know, I had to be patient I mean, my patience was rewarded ultimately, but I, I really had to be right. patient. And again, a bit like you've said with your book, it does not end as you think it's going to end. I, I just want to say Lars Levi Lestadius was, in fact, a real preacher. Oh. Yeah. And he was, in fact, the founder of the revivalist movement. And the author, Mikhail Nimi, grew up near Pajala, wow. near the village of Kengis, and he has visited Lars Levy's grave. So Lars Levy was, in fact, the pastor and administrator of the Swedish State Lutheran Church in Lapland, and he founded the Lestidian revival movement to help the Sami congregations that were being ravaged by alcoholism. How interesting. So there's a, there's a lot of historical Oh, I really want to read this, Lou. You've made um, it sound so good. Is there a superb Can you show book? me the cover? Yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Look at that. Oh, wow. What a divine With cover. With the bear and the yeah. pastor and little Yussi. There is so much in this book. It, it's I think it's a book Was that for, sent to you by a publisher or did you just? No, I snapped all this myself. Absolutely beautiful. Wow. That's To Cook a Bear by Mikhail Nimi. It's published by McLehose Press, which is an imprint of Quercus, which is, of course, part of the Hashett family. I can highly recommend it, but it's not a book to be read quickly. It's a book to be savoured, probably perhaps over the holiday season. Yeah. It's a really big book. Yeah, okay. Um, sounds really good. The other one that I was going to... So I forgot to say my first one was The Contacts by Mark Watson. Yes. My second book is... The Good Sister by Sally Hepworth. 
I stumbled onto Sally Hepworth's Instagram page earlier this year and I could see she's very funny. I think when I sort of stumbled on her account, she had discovered that a lot of Americans don't have kettles and it became this <laughs> hilarious thing called Kettlegate. <laughs> I think she'd been to America or I, I can't remember how she discovered Because they don't this. eat in their homes, do they? There's more to it than that. It was okay. actually quite And it really struck a chord with me because late last year, a lady that I'm friendly with on Instagram yes. um, and we've sent each other things, had a trip to the UK and she was posting in quite a delighted way all the kettles, the electric <laughs> kettles in their hotel rooms. And I was completely mystified by this and I sort of, you know, wrote and said, oh, well, what do you use to make a cup of tea? And she said that she boiled water on the stove. I think I actually can't remember what she said she used, but I thought, oh, okay. And it turns out that one of the reasons, and there may be more to this, and I, you can't make sweeping generalisations no. about all Americans. No, but, absolutely not. Um, but one of the reasons seems to be that the electrical wiring in many parts of the States isn't fast enough to be compatible with a kettle. Really? It, or it isn't powerful enough. Or, I, I'm not sure. That, that's one of the things that I read. Yeah. So, you know, if that's not true, write in and let me know. So people don't have them. And... You know, I love that there's a practical, you know, reason yes. for for what seems, you know, quite surprising. Yes. And um, I think they also have, a lot of them have coffee, coffee. machines. I was just about to say coffee and they have coffee on the stove and they have the drip yeah, filter lot, machine. Yeah, exactly. Yes. So they're probably not big tea drinkers no, in the way that the British are. are or that we are. Yeah. I mean, gosh, I have so many cups of tea. I live without my tea. My goodness. So, uh, Lou, I think you would really enjoy mm. Sally's Instagram page because mm. she does... Lots of videos talking to the screen mm. and she does them on different days. And so she does one that I think you would love called Writerly Wednesday. Yes. It's fascinating. She gets people to write in and ask her questions about the writing process mm. and then she chooses a few questions and she oh, answers fascinating. them. And I've gone back through her mm. feed and watched mm. quite a few of them because I find them so interesting. So she talks about her experience as a, as a writer she has book deals in advance with her publishers mm. and so she t talks about how all that works. She talks about her own process for writing a book, which is not at all what I expected. It's highly organised. And she's one of those disciplined writers. Yeah, she knows exactly what's going to happen in every scene. Oh, wow. Wow. It's really interesting. And she plans it all out first and it's all on her computer in a big spreadsheet. So there's one video where she flicks her lap her screen around to the camera and it's got three big columns it looks like a big excel mm. spreadsheet and you can see it's probably the three storylines and she's got them all you know in order of so she can see what's happening with all three of them i, I imagine that's how you mm. keep your different storylines mm. all keeping up to date with one another and they're all sort of plotted out she talks about how many words she writes a day and when and how she does this thing called the Nifty 350 where now where she gets up and goes down immediately first thing at 6am and she writes 350 words. words. I've heard other people do that as well. That seems to be quite a... Yeah, in the quiet. She just, yes. And, she, and the other thing she does is she doesn't worry about quality. She no, just, just gets the words. Form. Yeah, she just gets writing. the words on the yeah. page and then yeah. she worries about that yes. later. So... I, I found that really interesting. Mm. She talks about, um, well, because she lives in Melbourne and they were, of course, in lockdown for yes. quite a long time and so she had to homeschool her kids and it was all chaos and she's, they're funny parents. They're mm. sort of, they're 
kids are sort of all over the place. It's hilarious. So having enjoyed her Instagram, I then had to read her new book, which came out in November, and that's The Good Sister. This would have fitted our twins episode because I think I'm going to be finding twin books I everywhere I go. I, 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 for a while. I now notice twins wherever yeah. I go I know, now. It's funny, isn't it? Yeah. So this one, there are fraternal twin sisters mm. in this story. They're called Fern and Rose. Of course they are. Yeah. <laughs> and Fern is not neurotypical, um, and she relies quite heavily on the other sister. And the thing I really loved about this is that Fern works in a library, um, which I just thought was delightful. I mean, what's not to love about that? And then there are all sorts of interesting characters that use the library and there's this bossy supervisor who seems to be always on Fern's case and so it always sort of seems to pop up at the wrong moment as supervisors I want to do. <laughs> it's also quite a funny book because whenever a library patron has trouble with the printer, Fern sort of manages to find an urgent job somewhere else because <laughs> she doesn't want to deal with. And someone, as someone who uh, has ongoing printer issues, I just you love do, that. You do, don't you? Oh, my God. <laughs> I just love it that. It is time to throw it out and buy a new one, Virginia. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, this, I did. I, <laughs> oh, do you mean this is a new one? My new one is not working, but let's not go there. <laughs> so I'm going to read out the back blurb. It says, Fern Castle works at her local library. She has dinner with her twin sister, Rose, three nights a week, and she avoids crowds, bright lights and loud noises as much as possible. Fern has a carefully structured life and disrupting her routine can be dangerous. When Rose discovers that she cannot fall pregnant, Fern sees her chance to pay her sister back for everything Rose has done for her. Fern can have a baby for Rose. She just needs to find a father. Simple. Fern's mission will shake the foundations of the life she has carefully built for herself and stir up dark secrets from the past in this quirky, rich and shocking story of unexpected love. Wow, another really modern story. Yep, very modern and uh, it's a very twisty tale. I started to see one aspect of the ending a bit, sort of, but I didn't really predict the ending at all. I don't want to say very much about the plot because it's very twisty mm. and... I would give something away, I'm sure. I thought it was really well written and it really, it was another one that left me thinking mm. afterwards, particularly going back, you know, when there are revelations in a book and then you finish the book and then you have to go and recalibrate everything yes. that you thought yes. and all the things that happened and see them through a different mm. paradigm. And I think that's... <laughs> I love being surprised by a book like yeah, that. Yeah. There's always something to teach us, isn't there? Yeah. So I think these are interesting. They're called sort of commercial novels and I've, I'm sort of not really familiar with what that means. But she, Sally has, I think she's written something like six or seven books. She gets sort of a three-book deal. She's very disciplined about her process. She just you know, goes in and does her 2,000 words a day and it takes her a year to write a book and she's just sort of got this thing going where she just keeps churning out these books. But I don't know how she does it. I don't know how she comes up with the ideas. Yeah, and it's funny that people would refer to them as commercial books just because she happens to be talented enough to be able to be that disciplined and that productive Yeah, that somehow it makes it... Yeah. Well, I sort of, I Googled the difference between, mm. I thought, what, what is a commercial book? I saw a reference to it on someone who'd done a really glowing review of it. And the definition that I saw was that it's got a broad mass appeal. Doesn't it just means it's successful? They sell yes, exactly. copies of, I think, yeah. I mean, and as you know, I love 
literary work, you know, mm. as much as the next person. But I also really love a gripping, mm. modern, mm. pacey, and you it's know. such a personal thing, whether a book yeah, exactly. resonates exactly. with you or not. Exactly. So, Yeah, I think you would really enjoy her. Yes, I'm I think you to, should have a look at her. And she does fashion and all sorts yeah, of shit. Every day she does a different thing and she's just really good fun. So that was Sally Hepworth's The Good Sister. Everyone has a dark side. So what else have you been diving into, Lou? Well, I just I just wondered, have you been watching The Crown, Virginia? I so have. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so I'm really keen to hear from people about The Crown this yeah, season because yeah. I don't think I've responded to it as positively as past seasons. No. But I do have a theory about that and I think it's, you know, it is partly the Diana factor. Yeah. But I think it's also that in our young adulthood we experienced the whole yes, Diana we, we Charles lived period. We lived through it. Yeah. So I think that there are different things competing in our heads yes. with... Yes. Well, we're trying to reconcile what we're seeing on the screen with two things, I think. One is what we thought at the time when Diana married him. Yes. Which we can all still remember quite vividly. Yes. We all watched the wedding. We all watched that interview where mm. he said, "Whatever being in love means," and thought, mm, "That's yes. a bit funny." We all. I mean, we had a few flags. We certainly there were certainly there were quite flags. a few flags. There at were the lots time. of flags. And then we've got to reconcile it also with what we've heard since the interview. Yes, uh, that she did, and the books that have come out. Not that I read the books, no, but I, didn't I feel like either. I have because no. they were all. You know, they Plus were everywhere. in the newspapers and there's been so much written, yeah. So for us it's a constant juggle, mm. I think, to go, well, wh wh where is the truth in the centre of all of this? But that's really interesting because I remember when my mother watched the series and there was the period with David and Wallace Simpson. Oh, yes. And she was a young girl when that was happening and she still recalls her mother's opinions of Wallace Simpson. Uh -huh. She's, we've, talked, we've discussed that. And I think I was probably, unfortunately, sorry, Mum, <laughs> a little bit dismissive towards my mum's reaction to that period of history. But I see now that's no different to our yeah. current reaction yeah. now because that's the period that my mother lived through. Yes. Uh, and they all had very strong opinions. Uh, obviously, they didn't know quite as much because... Things didn't come out. No, media didn't have the no. presence that it has no. today. But really, with hindsight, she was reacting in the same way that we are reacting now. Yes. So, look, I still think Tobias Menzies is the best member Isn't of the cast he, as Prince, Prince Philip. Philip. Absolutely superb. And, look, I do think the actress who's playing Diana is since fabulously she like is. her. But there are a few niggly yeah. things that irritate me. To be honest, Princess Margaret, Helen, Helena yeah, Bonham Carter. She was good in this season. No, I it irritates was... me a bit. And, yeah. But I think Olivia Coleman has really come into the role of the Queen. Isn't she excellent? I thought she was superb. So I'm enjoying watching it. I'm enjoying it as an experience, but it is quite different. Yeah, and I, I did find it funny watching the episode where they're meant to be in Brisbane and they yes. filmed it all in Spain. And, yes. and there's the Outback yes. Outback Australia and it could not look. It looks like the, they're the in the Andes or something. <laughs> they're just so not in Australia. It was so funny because when Ayers Rock came up, both of my boys just <laughs> shouted at the screen, green screen! <laughs> I mean, oh, no, no, no. They definitely filmed it by Ezra Rock. Mum, 
It's a green screen. <laughs> and Sydney Harbour yeah. and the Opera House, yeah. Yeah, I don't think the production team came out to Australia to It, it is interesting. That. One of the things that I'm finding interesting is that a lot of people who, the younger people who weren't around at the time, mm. seem to be taking it as gospel. The whole story is so tragic anyway. It is incredibly tragic to look back mm. on now and see mm. how young she was. And to see how... And how brave she was to launch herself into that. With She didn't seem to have anyone around her. No, the isolation. It must have been terrifying. Yeah. That is the bit I think that is strange, that there were obviously conventions and traditions and mores that were accepted as the way to conduct oneself. And you look back now and you think, would they really do it that way again? Yeah. Would she really be left in a, an apartment in Buckingham Well, I Palace? mean, some people would argue that they did do the same thing again with Meghan, but, mm. uh, you know, who knows? We'll, mm. we'll never know. Mm. So I just thought it was also really important to mention the Booker Prize winner. Oh, yes. Okay. Douglas Stewart for his book, Shuggy Bane or Shuggy Bane. It's a debut novel. I would love to know the percentage of Booker Prize winners that are debuts. Yeah. Can you imagine writing your first novel? Even oh. if you've been a writer of essays or yeah. poetry or whatever. Yeah, short stories. And yeah. you win the Booker. I know. It's, yeah. it's just Yeah, I wonder insane. how many. I'm... I'd love to know the percentage. Mm. Look, I really do want to read the book, but I know I'm going to have to be in a good headspace to do so because it's set in the tenements in Glasgow. It's the story of a young boy living in poverty who becomes the sole carer of his abusive and alcoholic mother when his older siblings move away. It sounds really, really grim, but really, really moving. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm sort of yeah. getting myself yeah. psyched to yeah. read it. And then the other thing I wanted to mention if you've been listening to our podcast from the start, we started last September, you'll know that we both love the journalist, writer and chef, Kate Young. She had a column in The Guardian for a long time and a blog, The Little Library Cafe. She's got two cookbooks, which we featured a couple of times. I think we've even given a couple of them away. Yes. The Little Library Cookbook and The Little Library Year. They're great favourites of mine. I cook for them a lot. And they include Kate's own essays and excerpts from literature that she's read, fiction mostly. And then she features the food that are in the books or eaten by the characters. And we've talked a lot about them. Well, the good news is Kate has a beautiful new book, a little red book called The Little Library Christmas. Oh, isn't that just the cutest thing it's with a little the, star It's the, on the size top. of a little novel. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's got a lovely red canvas cover, The Little Library Christmas by Kate Young. And I just want to read what she says at the start of the book because it's just delightful. For my family, all my families, in memory of Christmas's past, anticipation of this Christmas present, and for the promise of Christmases yet to come. How beautiful. It really is beautiful. It's divided up into little chapters, which have got gorgeous titles, which, is, of course, is what she's known for. The first chapter is Brown Paper Packages. Oh. Then she's got Let's Party Like It's 1843. Oh. I think it's a reference to Charles Dickens. Um, then there's the Twas the Night Before Christmas. A Bird in the Oven and Starting Anew. And it's packed, jam-packed full of Christmas recipes, but also lovely essays that really are in the style of a memoir, her, you know, recollections of her childhood uh, growing up in Australia and then moving to Britain. And she also references lots of novels. But the beautiful thing about this is she also references lots of TV series. So it's a thoroughly modern oh, little I library I'm going to go and buy this today. <laughs> yeah. She has um, a recipe index at the back, which she has in all her books. And then she always has a reading list 
or a author list. But this one is called a reading and watching list because she's also got the Diary of Bridget Jones oh. and various movies and television series as well, How um, which is gorgeous. So I can thoroughly Oh, that is absolutely that. perfect. It's a beautiful gift. Yeah. Which is why I mentioned it in this episode because people need to go out and buy yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. That is gorgeous, Lou. I'm going to go and get myself one today. <laughs> get myself into the spirit. Yes. What else have you been diving um, into? So I watched a series that I think you would love called Roadkill. Mm. It's on a- ABC iView and it has Hugh Laurie, Helen McCrory and Saskia Reeves. Oh, fantastic. So it's a political thriller. Oh, is this with him as the politician? Yes. Ah, yes. Have you seen it? No, I haven't seen it, but I've seen the advertisements for it. You, you should watch it with all your boys yeah. because you would all love it. It's yeah. so good. It's The screenplay is by David Hare and yes. he is so yeah, good. Amazing. And this yeah. is just up to his usual mm. standard. It's got so many twists and turns and everyone is conniving and out for themselves. And as a viewer, you are never sure who is on the upper and who is going to come a cropper because it, you think so-and-so is is winning and they're going to be they're going to get this seat or they're going to have you know, this little win over here and then someone else is undermining them over here. So and the virtue shifts. Oh, my goodness, it's yeah, so I well done. It. And the ending is brilliant. We we just absolutely loved mm. it, so I really okay. recommend that excellent. one. It's absolutely That might fantastic. even be this weekend. And I also listened to an excellent podcast that I thought I would tell you about. It's on the podcast called Days Like These, mm. which is an ABC podcast. I haven't listened to many of them, but this one I just listened to yesterday and I just thought it was so interesting. It's called Mum Thinks the Earth is Flat. <laughs> and an ABC journalist, I'm pretty sure she's an ABC journalist, um, chronicles her mother's decline to the point where she now believes all the conspiracy oh. theories. And it's fascinating because... After watching lots of these protests on TV where people are saying, you know, COVID isn't real and it's the government's attempt to um, manipulate us all and there's so many conspiracy theories I don't even know Mm. where to start. I've often wondered about the people around them, whether they also think the same way or whether they're struggling with this person in their family who, you know, thinks the earth Mm. is flat. And so that's why I, I clicked on this because I thought, oh, I'd, I'd love to know what that's like to have someone in your family who thinks the earth is flat. But I think you've hit the nail on the head for this period that we're in at the moment. Families are really divided on so many issues yeah. like never before. Yeah. Before we've had families who have all sort of cheered for the same team and voted in the same way. And I'm not saying they should, but yeah, there are huge divisions yeah. in families, yeah. I think, over so many issues at yeah. the moment. This lady, she uh, remarried a guy who was a bit weird and he used to put holes in his shoes to let some rays from the earth come through into his body in London. So they think it sort of started through him and I think he thinks the the earth is flat, but the mother has taken this on board. Mm, She's sort of given in to the... Yeah, and she uh, went to a a big conference, like a QAnon conference, and gave a talk And when the daughter at the beginning sort of says to her mother, well, if the earth is flat, why don't you go to the edge of the earth and see? The mother says, no, because there'll be men with guns who will shoot everybody. You know, she's like, it's really, really quite bizarre. And the mother was a qualified maths teacher in Australia. So someone who had always followed science and 
highly educated. So it just shows you how, you know, anyone can do this. But it's really worth a listen. Mm. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't have any great solutions, but it was just a really interesting mm. insight into what it's like to have that in your family. And really hard because, you know, we have strong views about right and wrong and yet we're also very nervous of being so arrogant that we would suggest to people that every theory they have is wrong. Yes, and should we be being open and saying, well, maybe maybe you could be right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, where is that line? Yeah. This girl's brother, I get the impression, has chosen a path of just nodding along and just letting it all wash over him. And she finds that difficult because she doesn't want to have a very inauthentic relationship with her mother mm. where she just accept, you know, lets mm. these things go through to the kids. Mm. I thought that was, it was really interesting. So before we go, I also just wanted to do a reminder that Louise and I are about to start reading Edith Wharton's mm -hmm. A House of Mirth. I'm really looking forward to mm, this. It's not too. a big book. We decided that we would do this as a read-along and we know lots of people have contacted us and also posted on Instagram that they're going to be reading it with us. Um, coincidentally, Lou, there's a group on Twitter that are also reading wow. The House of Mirth. Yeah, I'm going to contact them actually. Excellent. And um, tell them about I our podcast. I can't wait actually. I don't know anything about The Gilded Age. I don't know much, but no, I, what I, I have read yeah. I've loved, is but I'd like Gatsby? to read more. Is The Great Gatsby? Uh, I think is it's it a bit earlier. A little bit earlier, okay. I think. Yes, but I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So that's all from us today. We hope you've enjoyed our conversation. We, we, it was a real grab bag of um, yes. different things that we've been reading and it's always fun to catch up on what you've been reading, though I really want to read the one you talked about. We'll do a swap. Yeah. So if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend and leave us a review so that new listeners can find us. Okay, bye. Bye. We really enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you for all your lovely reviews too. If you want to know more about today's books or anything else we've talked about, you'll find them in the show notes. And we feature most of the books on our Instagram page too, at diving underscore in underscore podcast. And if you'd like to share any books that you've been diving into, we'd love to hear from you. Please email us at hello at divinginpodcast.com. Bye for now. Breaking up, shaping up, working in, diving in. Breaking up, shaping up